Good morning, church. You can go ahead and turn to the passage of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm honored to be with you guys today and uh, bring the word this morning. Let's go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. It's awesome to be with you guys here um, today, and like I said, we'll be in this passage this morning. Um, we don't have a ton of time to dive into the entire book of Hebrews and provide a ton of context, but what I do want us to know, what I want you to know about the book of Hebrews is that it's written like a persuasive essay. It has a lot of um, things about it that kind of tend to come off in a way that it's persuading you to know something, to do something, to feel some type of way. You know, when I was growing up in school, uh, we had started writing our persuasive essays in middle school and high school, and it seemed like I was writing one every single week. It was a new persuasive essay. And at the same time, I, one of my professors or teachers wanted me to start writing them on Google Docs. And so as I was writing this sermon, I was wondering, I wonder if I have any of my old persuasive essays on Google Docs. And unfortunately, I did. <laughs> And so I went in and I found a couple, and these were the things that I was writing about in high school. Number one, should drivers use cell phones? I don't think we needed a whole persuasive essay to answer that one. It's pretty simple, just no. Uh, another one, women on the front lines. I think I was probably the worst person to write an article or a persuasive essay on women on the front lines. A 15-year-old boy has no idea what he's talking about. And then third, should pit bulls be banned in the city of Edwardsburg? Yes, this was the greatest threat to the city of Edwardsburg, pit bulls. Well, I had all the answers to those. No, really, these essays had two things in common. They were all terrible arguments, and they had no impact on anyone besides me and my below-average GPA. The letter to the Hebrews, however, is the best persuasive essay ever written. And our passage today has an argument that should impact us all. Our verses are written to persuade us to draw near to our Savior. So I want to make that the goal of the sermon this morning, to persuade you to draw near to your Savior. And we're going to look at these three verses and draw three reasons why we should draw near to our Savior. All right, so verse 14, I'm gonna read it again and we'll get our first reason. It says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So reason number one to draw near to your Savior is this. Jesus is your eternal priest. Jesus is your eternal priest. So why did the author of Hebrews have to write a persuasive essay in the first place. Well, it had come time for these people to continue on in their faith, 
Jesus had ascended. They had put their faith in him to save them from their sins, but they began to question how their sin was going to be dealt now that Jesus was gone. They were so used to having a priest take care of their sins, having a priest give them forgiveness, and then another priest, and another, and so on, and so on. But if Christ came and he became just another priest, then there would be one to follow, but that's not the case. This text says that Christ is the eternal priest. And what the people had misunderstood was their relationship between the judgment of their sin and the forgiveness of Christ. There's a misunderstanding there. The biblical authors work hard to portray Christ into three main roles, as a prophet, as a king, and as a priest. The author of the Hebrews uh, focuses here on the role of priest, and so that's what we're gonna be focusing on today. And earlier in the letter to the Hebrews, in chapter two, verse 17, the author says this about Christ and his role as priest. He says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now this is an excellent description of what Christ's role is as priest. But not only did he make propitiation for the sins of these people that the original audience was, but for you and me, he has made propitiation for our sins. And what sets Jesus apart as the great high priest or eternal priest is that he has passed through the heavens, as it said. Much like the high priest in the Old Testament would have to pass through the veil to get into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice, so Christ has passed through the heavens into the Holy of Holies. But the difference is, those priests in the Old Testament would quickly leave and then have to return again to make another sacrifice. The work was not done for them. But Christ, the great high priest, the eternal priest, passes through the heavens And as Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13 say, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for all sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You and I probably don't often think of Jesus in the same way that the biblical authors describe him in these three different roles. And with this text being so heavily focused on Christ being our high priest, I wanna just take a moment to look at uh, three different ways that Christ's role as an eternal priest impacts our relationship to him. So here's three different ways Christ's role as an eternal priest impacts our relationship to him. First way is this, you can rest in Christ's work because he is resting too. Jesus, as it says, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, enjoying the fact that the sacrificial work is done. And he invites us to rest with him. His work of making sacrifices is done, and now he's able to enjoy the fruits of his labor, which are glory and honor, but also shelling out grace to us, the forgiveness of sins. Another way that we can that, the, that Christ's role as eternal priest impacts our relationship to our relationship with us is this. God is always for you. God is always for you. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God 
through him, but because he always lives to intercede for them. He is living right now to intercede for you. One theologian points out that this means that our, pri- our high priest does not need to spend time on himself offering sacrifices for sins or worrying about impending judgment. Any other earthly priest spends their time begging for mercy over their own sin, but our high priest has none. So what he does with his time instead is give mercy to us who do have plenty of sin. And Jesus' placement at the right hand of the Father, I think it's a beautiful picture if you can think about it, puts him in the perfect place to lean over to the Father and point down at us and say, that is one of your children. He's on our side, he's with us. He's doing that constantly, always living to intercede for you. And Christ's role as eternal priest means that God hasn't forgotten you. It means that God hasn't forgotten you. Jesus wouldn't let him, that's his role, that's his job right now. He's making sure that you are not forgotten. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, he writes about Christ's intercession for us. He says, Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail on earth. He does not forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope we make it the rest of the way. Now, if you're still failing, Christ is still forgiving. If you're still sinning, Christ is still interceding for you. Having an eternal priest means that you have eternal forgiveness. Christ has taken care of your past sin. Christ has taken care of the sin that you have yet to realize that you committed. And Christ has taken care of the sin that you're gonna commit next week and next year because he is eternally forgiving. The kind of eternal high priest that makes our uh, or having this kind of eternal high priest makes our confession of faith eternal as well. Which is why the author wraps up this verse with a conclusion, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession that Jesus saves is worth holding fast to because Christ is eternally interceding for you and me right now. There never was and never will be a new formula for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what these people had forgot, or they had thought maybe there was a new one. One of the most frustrating things I think about uh, living in the 21st century in this country is how many updates we get, like software updates for our phone, our computer, our tablets. I don't know if you guys have those all the time. I actually have one on my computer right now that said, do you wanna update now? And I always say, no, try tomorrow. Every single time I try that, and it's still there. It's unbelievable. But. The reality is those software updates, I don't like them on my phone because they slow it down or they cause it to not hold a charge as well or it overheats in some type of way because it's not, kind of, it's not fit for the device. But some of us treat our sin life like we're going to need a new update to get rid of our sin when the reality is we have an eternal high priest who a sacrifice was once for all. Don't make the same mistake that these people were in danger of making, thinking that the power of Christ's life, death, and resurrection was wearing off. The power of God's grace will never wear off. There is no update coming, so hold fast to the original confession of faith and repentance of sin.
Now, if this language of Christ as our eternal high priest makes him sound far off or unreachable, maybe even unrelatable, then this next verse balances everything out. Let's go ahead and look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So reasons to draw near to God. Reason number one, Jesus is our eternal priest. Reason two, Jesus is your sympathetic friend. Jesus is your sympathetic friend. If you read these verses closely, you should be amazed at the audacity of this claim that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Even though that we have a high priest who is one who has passed through the heavens making him eternal, we have one who is relatable. Before the Son of God came as a man to earth, God knew our weaknesses and our temptation by observation and by his omniscience. But now because of Christ's life, as a human, he knows our weaknesses, our temptations, not only just by observation, but actually by experience. Theologian Donald McLeod captures this really well in this quote. It says, Jesus lived not in sublime detachment or ascetic isolation, but with us. As the fellow man among men, crowded, busy, harassed, stressed, molested, no large estate gave him space, no financial capital guaranteed his daily bread, no personal staff protected him from interruptions, and no power or influence protected him from injustice. He saved us from alongside us. Christ did not encounter every single trial and tribulation that you may have gone through in your life as a human, but he did suffer as a human, and he can relate to us, and he can relate to your suffering because he was fully God and fully man. If you're a Christian, then Christ's death on the cross was far more suffering than you will ever go through because he bore the weight of full sin. Not only does Christ know what it's like to suffer, but he also knows what it's like to remain under temptation. Remember that just because you experience temptation doesn't mean that you have failed. Temptation is natural and normal for humans, normal for Christians, and it became a normal experience for Christ. In fact, Christ actually experienced temptation to an even higher degree than we do. Because when you and I give in to sin and give in to temptation, the temptation stops. We're alleviated just for a little while. But Jesus never gave in to temptation, so temptation lingered all the more. And he still never gave in. Christ knows our struggle and becomes the great sympathizer in this way. Now, I don't know if you would consider yourself someone who's great at sympathizing with people, but I probably wouldn't put myself in that category. I know this because I often try to sympathize, but fail. And the way this comes up most often in my life is in my marriage. 
My wife is a, uh, a nurse in an ER, and her job is a billion times more difficult than mine. She comes home uh, from work after a night shift, and I always ask her, like, how was your shift? How was your shift last night? And I always get the most incredible stories ever. Like, they're amazing. And if you ever need to hear a good story, just ask an ER nurse how their last shift went. When I ask her how her shift goes, I usually hear um, great stories and how she's running around saving people's lives, people who are sick, people who are hurting. And then usually she's trying to do her very best and people still reject her and are actually angry at her for the way that she does her job. I never really get to experience this. But here's the only issue that I have with asking her about her shift was. Eventually, I know that she's gonna ask me how my day at work was, and I'm gonna tell her that it was nothing like hers. It was nothing even remotely close to as difficult and strenuous and stressful as hers was. At my work, sometimes Pastor Brad takes me out to get tacos. (laughs) At Gigi's work, a lot of times she doesn't even get to eat the meal of ramen that she packed for herself. So usually the response I have to Gigi telling me how her night shift went is, I am so sorry. That is awful. That's all I can say. I can't say, I'm so sorry. I know what that's like. I have no idea what it's like to be an ER nurse. My response to my wife's struggle feels extremely inadequate. It's a bit unsatisfactory and insufficient in all reality. Maybe a reason that you don't want to draw near to your savior is because you think his response will actually be inadequate or unsatisfactory, insufficient. You think he might be able to say, I'm so sorry, but won't be able to follow it up with, I know what it's like to be there with you. And if that's how you feel, then these words are written just for you. You do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as you are. Do you feel weak? Like you're not good enough for your family, your friends, coworkers, peers? Do you feel temptation? Is there a sin that just seems to trip you up no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you pray? Do you need someone to mourn with, mourn over your own weaknesses with? Do you, know, do you need someone who knows how difficult it is to say no to temptation? Jesus knows what that's like. He's able to sympathize with you. He endured all of this and still was, as our text says, without sin. Friends, there are certain verses in the Bible, certain phrases that everything about our faith hangs on, and this is one of those, that Christ was without sin. The life he lived as fully human and fully God, enduring suffering and temptation, he did so without ever sinning. And because of his selfless sacrifice, he offers that sinless life to be applied to us. This is why Paul says in the book of Galatians that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. It's our only hope that we would be able to say that as well. 
It's our only hope that our sinful life can be exchanged for Christ's sinless life. This is how our Savior meets our most desperate need. This leads us to our final reason why we should draw near to our Savior in verse 16. Let's go ahead and read. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So three reasons to draw near to your Savior. The first one, Jesus is your eternal priest. Second, Jesus is your sympathetic friend. Reason number three, Jesus is your abundant provider. Jesus is your abundant provider. So now that we know who this Savior is, our eternal high priest, our relatable sympathizer, let us approach him. The author here has been laying out his argument for why you should draw near to our Savior. And now with all the facts laid out about who he is, who you're drawing near to, he tells you what to do. Not only does he tell us what to do, but he actually tells us how to do that, with confidence. Now, approaching God with confidence doesn't have a five-step process for how you can gain confidence, because it is not about us trying to work up the courage, work up the confidence in ourselves, but it's all about understanding who we are approaching that our confidence comes from. We just heard about our Savior interceding for us. We just heard that he will be able to sympathize with our human struggle. There's nothing holding us back from drawing near to our Savior. You know what's one of the greatest feelings in the world, at least in my experience, is having the type of friends that when you go over to visit their home, you don't have to knock on the door, you can just kind of walk right in. It takes a certain level of confidence, comfortability, understanding to get to that point. There's only a few friends that I feel like I have that confidence with. I don't have to knock on the door, I can just walk right in. But that's how we're actually supposed to approach God. God isn't asking for us to come in and make sure that you're all ready to go before you walk through the door or knock and wait for him to come open the door. He left it unlocked for you. He's waiting for you to approach him and remain at his feet and ask for help. But we probably don't think about approaching God like that. At least in my experience, I think we tend to think of approaching God like he's probably that new neighbor that just moved in that we know we probably should get a gift basket together, maybe bake some cookies and take over to his house and say welcome to the neighborhood. But you're scared that maybe the relationship that you have with that neighbor, that he might ask you to do something once you get there. Like, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower or something? And it makes you uncomfortable because you're scared of the relationship that you might have with that person. Or maybe they'll think you're weird or they'll be intimidating. That's not the way God wants us to approach him. The character of God is that he is an eternal priest, a sympathetic friend, and a provider for every need. And that is the basis upon which we are to approach God. But if the character of him wasn't enough to draw us in, let's look at what we find when we get there. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? The throne of grace. It doesn't say the throne of high standards. It doesn't say the throne of rules or laws. 
It doesn't even say the throne of holiness. Though that would be a fair description. It says the throne of grace. And what you can receive flows directly from the type of throne that this is. Jesus will meet your every need. If you need mercy, there is mercy to be had. If you need grace, there is grace that overflows. The end of this verse reminds me a lot of Psalm 23, verse six, which says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word that's translated as follows in that verse actually is probably better translated as pursued or chased. The idea is more like a lion hunting its next meal than just a simple walk through the park. God's mercy and his goodness are chasing you down. But what's weird is God's love is actively pursuing me like this with such passion and ferocity and yet I struggle to muster up the courage to call out to God for my help in time of need. Think about when was the last time you sought God with an ounce of the passion with which he has sought you out? Today's passage is all about inspiring you to draw near to God with the same kind of intentionality that he has drawn near to you with. It all seems really nice, so in in this passage, drawing near to God, a sympathetic friend, a provider, someone that we can approach for forgiveness, so why don't we do it? I think there's two issues that we often run into where we fail to approach God. First, we don't think we're the type of person qualified to approach a throne room. And second, we look to another source to meet our needs. The first one, in reality, what qualifies a person to draw near to a throne of grace is simply that you have a need. The matter is less about are you good enough and more about do you recognize your weakness? Can you think of one need right now? Try to think of one need that you need from God. If you can think of one right now, then you're qualified to draw near to God, to your Savior. And it says that he will help in time of need. And then the other reason we often turn away, look to another source to meet our needs. In reality, nothing will be able to satisfy us or help us like Christ. There is nothing else and no one else that is equipped to handle your need. In fact, admission of need to the rest of the world is like your greatest weakness. It gets you rejected. But admission of need to your savior is your greatest strength. As Pastor Mark said just last week, weakness, when weakness is our strength, Dependency is an asset. And dependency is an incredible asset only when we realize that Christ is worth leaning on for every situation. It's no secret that a good application of this text would result in us drawing near to our Savior, just as verse 16 says. But I I want to suggest that this drawing near to God should not just be taken 
as a way to draw near to God on Sunday mornings or with prayer before bed, those are great. But God wants more out of us. He wants our whole beings to be with his whole being. So I want to suggest just a couple ways that you can draw near to God this week. Now, I'm not a prophet, but I do know that in the next seven days and probably more likely the next seven hours, you are going to experience the effects of being human. Namely, you are going to feel weak or you are going to need grace for something. I know this because it's true of me as well. And when you feel weak this week, I want you to simply tell God. That's all we have to do. All he wants for us to do is to communicate that weakness to him, drawing near to him in this way. Feeling weak is actually a really good thing. Your weakness tells you that you are not God. It's like an alarm clock going off inside of you that says you are not God and you need God. Take that opportunity of feeling weak to ask God to be your strength. You can simply pray something like this. Lord, I have no idea how I am going to make it through, fill in the blank. But I know that my weakness gives you an opportunity to show your strength. Please help. And this way, you can approach God with confidence, knowing that he is ready to meet your every need. Your feeling of weakness not only reveals something about your need for God, but it actually gives you an opportunity to relate to God in a very unique way. Knowing that Christ didn't leave us to walk this life alone as a human, but actually came just for the purpose to be able to say, I can sympathize with your weakness. When you feel weak in the next few days, know that Christ is able to sympathize with you. And then when you find yourself needing grace this week, draw near to God knowing that he is interceding for you right now. The process of your forgiveness has already been started for you. You just need to participate in the last part by turning to Christ, turning toward the throne of grace to receive mercy. So when you feel conviction this week, be quick to turn to the Lord and not allow for sin to linger on within you and cause even more harm. God wants us to be able to glance at our sin, acknowledging that it is present, but then gaze at Christ, the forgiveness of our sin. So let's go ahead and draw near to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have pursued us in this way. We thank you that you sent your son as a human, as fully God, as fully man, so that he would know what it's like to struggle alongside us. We thank you that you saved us from right beside us. I pray that our knowledge of you as our priest, as our friend, as our provider, would not just be understood, but that it would motivate us to draw near to you. Thank you for your grace that helps in every time of need. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.